So if I haven't met you yet, my name is James Nelson. My wife Kira and I have been members here for six years, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Deacon of Ordinances. So um, yeah, welcome in. So this class is the Anthropology and Sin class. This is the sixth week on Anthropology, and the next six weeks we'll be covering different topics of sin. Um, but before we get started here, I want to ask the class a question, and this is audience participation, so let me know your thoughts. What is the point of your life? I got two people saying the same answer. Love it. <laughs> glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a good. It's uh, a good answer. Did anybody expand on that? What does that mean? Or do you have a different answer about what the point of our lives is? Yeah, so glorifying God involves having a relationship with God, reflecting his communicable attributes. Any other thoughts? Yeah, that's really good. And we will be getting into that in a little bit. So yeah, that's a good answer. But yeah, I think just most basically God created man for his own glory. Um, couple of verses here. You could go all throughout the Bible for that. Isaiah 43, 7, God says to bring him his sons and daughters, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And Romans eleven thirty six is familiar. It says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So everything that God created, including man, is for his glory. So in this class, we will think biblically about why God made man, namely about some key ways that man was made to glorify God, focusing on the creation account as we've been doing um, in this class and also looking to other parts of the Bible. We'll focus on two key parts of man's destiny. You'll see on your handout there, the title for this class is The Destiny of Man, Work and Worship. So we'll be talking about those uh, two key parts of how we glorify God. So just diving into the first section here, it's work. Um, and letter A is labor or stewardship um, of creation for God's glory. Just other words for work. So like I said, most of these anthropology classes have begun in the creation account in Genesis, and we will too. That's where God explains how and why we were created before the fall. In this class, we're looking for clues as to what God made man for. Why did he make him? So go, go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to Genesis 1. We'll be looking at a few uh, passages there, so it'll be helpful if you can look at them as well. In Genesis, right at the beginning of man, we see a mandate given to man. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then skipping down to verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all creatures. That word dominion over, it's also translated rule over, govern, reign over. And then just verse 29 to finish this, it says, God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So we, mankind, are deputies of God in subduing the earth for his glory. We're to exercise God's rule and authority over all creation. The first thing that the Bible says that man is to do after God made him is to work. Part of what it means to be human is to exercise lordship over creation and give the world shape and order and design that reflects the truth and beauty of God. There are three types of work mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2. Just want to reflect on each of them really quickly. So again, 26 through 28, we just read, God says man will have dominion over all creatures. And then if you flip over to Genesis 2, verses 19 to 20, we see Adam naming the animals. So he's, that's an exercise or an evidence of his dominion and rule over them. So another way to put this is that God gave man as a master whose work would rule over the irrational creatures. 
And this work reflects God because he has ultimate dominion and rule over all things, right? And he delegates some of that to man. The second type of work we see um, is there in Genesis 1.28. God tells man to be fruitful and multiply. That command reminds us that our destiny is to be communal beings, to inhabit and shape the social and natural world. So God commissions us to establish civilization and to develop culture. Uh, Randy Alcorn put it this way, culture is the natural God-intended product of his calling for mankind to rule over creation. And this reflects God's image because he's existed in perfect society forever in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then just point out a third type of work that we see here. If you flip to Genesis 2, could somebody actually uh, read out loud for us Genesis 2, 5 through 9? So nice and loud for the whole class, Genesis 2, 5 through 9. Verse 15 also. Yes. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Yeah, so we see here God creating man and then immediately commanding him to work the ground. Now that's part of the reason why he was made. He made man and he told him to grow plants to eat and to steward the earth. So God is clearly the one who created the plants. He put the trees in the garden. We see that. But he put man there to work it and to keep it. And this work images God because he's the one ultimately that makes plants grow. Um, But he invites us to participate in that process with him. So just looking at this survey of the first couple chapters of Genesis, one conclusion that we must draw from the creation account is that work is good. The Bible is clear that work is not a result of sin or the fall, but it's a God-given gift to man before the fall. God did not intend for man to be idle. The proof is right there in the beginning. Adam and Eve had work to do before the fall. Even if you look at Genesis 2-2, if you still have your Bibles open there, it describes God himself as working. It says God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God created, and he created us, and he invites us to participate in that creativity through our work. You'll see some passages here just on the second bullet of just other parts in the Bible that bear this out. The rest of the Bible assumes the dignity and the importance of work. Um, We'll just look at a couple of passages, uh, but would somebody mind uh, looking up Ephesians 4.28? Ephesians 4.28, who's going to get that? And then could somebody else go to Proverbs 12, 14, through 20, or 14 and 24? Just two verses. Can you grab, grab that, Dan? Proverbs 12. Yeah, just verses 14 and 24. So you have Ephesians 4, 28. Let's go ahead and read that. Yeah, do you have it? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in Yeah, so this is Paul commanding the thief to no longer steal, but essentially for all of us, do your work, earn a living, um, so that you can share with others. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 11 is a similar type of passage. It says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, I think the the lesson here is that the ordinary way um, of eating is to work, um, not to mooch. I think it's ultimately a command not to be idle. So Proverbs 12, if you could read verses 14 and 24, that'd be great. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of the man's hand comes back to him. Yeah. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the sloth will enforce labor. So what, what principles can we draw from those two proverbs that we just read? Any thoughts? Dan or anybody else? What, what principles come out of that? Bear the fruit of your labor. Yeah, so it's, it's important to work. You bear the fruit of your labor. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we see there hard work is virtuous and slothfulness is a vice, right? And we see, we see both of those um, principles all throughout the Proverbs. One other place, Proverbs twenty two twenty nine, it praises the value of a man who is skillful in his work, who's practiced at it and becomes skillful at it. By the way, all of these verses about the dignity and the importance of work and hard work, um, they all also apply to stay-at-home wives and moms as well. If you look at Titus 2.5, um, the way it describes that work is working at home. So if you look at working throughout the Bible, it applies to all sorts of work. Um, so we won't talk too much about the consequences of sin in this class because, as I said, the next six weeks are actually going to be covering that in a lot of detail. But on the topic of work, I think it's worth noting that many of the curses that you see in Genesis 3 are actually directly focused on um, work, and they show the importance and centrality of work to humans. Um, so if you just want to look at Genesis 3, 17 to 19, the curse to Adam was to curse the subduing and exercising of dominance over the earth, right? It says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And then part of the curse to Eve is to curse childbearing, which is part of how a woman was created to help man fulfill the work mandate to fill and subdue the earth. That's in Genesis 3.16. So the process of both filling the earth and subduing it is now cursed because of sin. What does that mean? I think just quickly it means frustration and futility. So frustration in both of these curses we see difficulty. It talks about thorns and thistles. We see the word pain mentioned in both the curse for man and the curse for women. And then it requires strenuous exertion, talking about the sweat of your face. So that's frustration. And then also futility. <clears throat> it's vain and futile in many ways that work would not be absent the fall. So I encourage you to go back and listen to Justin Hughes' evening service that he gave about a month ago on Ecclesiastes 2. It talks about the vanity of work. Um, it talks about toil is vanity because apart from God, there's nothing to be gained. Um, all of our work is left to somebody else when we die, and it's vexatious. And so there's no satisfaction in our work because of the fall, unless we're trusting in God. So apart from God, work is now vain. But I think what we can learn, again, from Genesis 1 and 2 is that work is good, and is still good, and it's part of God's plan to bring him glory. So looking at the third bullet here, we're just going to talk a little bit about how does our work glorify God? How does our work glorify God? So we, we mentioned, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah. I, I was wondering if you had any encouragement for people who want to see the, the command to work and to provide and to share and are Yeah, and I, th I think we've, we've talked a little bit throughout this class, like in the body and soul class and some others about, you know, because of the fall, a lot of things are not how they should be, right? So some people are unable to do certain things because their bodies are impaired in a certain way or their minds are impaired in a certain way. Um, or yeah, there just aren't opportunities because of various circumstances. And so, yeah, I think none of this is to belittle any of that. Um, just like none of the passages that we looked at from Paul and others are to belittle people who are unable to do certain things. I think some of those encouragements about the virtue of hard work is, you know, working hard as you're able, um, I think is a, is a theme that we see throughout. And part of why you should work hard as you're able is to take care of people who are unable um, to do that. And so, yeah, I think you're part of church as community is taking care of each other. Um, so I hope that answers part of your question. But um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And stewarding our time well is a good way to think about it. And even just looking on your handout here, we're going to talk about 
we're talking about work right now. We'll also talk about good works and what that, what that means, how to steward our time. And then on the back, we're going to talk about worship. And those are other things that I think these are all connected and related things in ways that we can glorify God, um, yeah, with our bodies and our souls. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so just for the sake of time, let's go ahead and, and move to this, this last bullet in section A here. How does our work glorify God? So we mentioned at the beginning that God created man to glorify him. Now we've seen in Genesis that God made man to work. So that raises the question, how does our work glorify God? So maybe a good way to frame this, and I want you to be thinking about the answer to this because I'm going to ask you, but a good way to frame this is to get at man's unique ability to bring God glory is how is our work different than animals? How is our work different than animals? It seems like at least some animals, like think about beavers or ants, are hard workers, and they subdue part of creation to bring order out of chaos. Think about a beaver building a dam, for instance. But we've been talking in this class about how man is the crown of creation. Man is made in God's image. Beavers are not. So think specifically about bringing God glory. How does man's work differ from that animal work and bring God more glory? Does anybody have thoughts on the answer to that? Yeah, so, yeah, that's consciousness of doing it for God's glory. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good answer. Go ahead. the employing of reason that he's given us. Yeah, so using that reason he's given us. You know, like creativity and beauty. So, like, there's work that's just functional, right? Like, using raw materials like the beaver just to, like, build a, a habitat, right? But then there's, there's creativity in how we work, and there's beauty in how we work. So it's not just, like, raw function. And then we also take iterations of what other people have done and build on that and sort of move like, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're more advanced in terms of things that we can do than we had a thousand years ago, and that's because of, of how God made us. Yeah, so beauty, creativity, and then invention and building upon what's been done before. I think these are all great answers. Um, yeah, just one answer that I had written down here is we better glorify God by exercising our intellects and our moral wills and intentionally, like you said, working to glorify God with thanksgiving. Um, and I think that kind of encapsulates a lot of what's been said. And actually, Zach, last week in this class, talked about um, our intellects and our moral wills. So I encourage you to listen to that if you um, missed it. But that's part of how our souls work. That, that's unique. So humans are morally self-conscious. And we make choices about our work based on motives that may or may not honor God. We may or may not be relying on God. We can image God through our judgments and will in ways that animals can't. Um, so we don't just subdue the earth like a beaver does, right? A beaver is excellent in his craft, and we should be excellent too because God is a God of order and of beauty. Um, but humans can and should intentionally do their work for the glory of their maker. As one theologian put it, I love this quote, says, In man... God has one through whom all things which flowed from him might, as it were, flow back to him. One who, as his steward, might collect the increase of all his creatures, acknowledge that it proceeded from him, and in suitable thanksgiving, return it, as it were, to God. So one more time, man is a steward that might collect the increase of all his creatures, acknowledge that it proceeded from God, and with suitable thanksgiving, return it, as it were, to God. So God doesn't need our work. Um, This is, I think, another helpful clarifying point. Acts 17.25 says God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives us everything. He doesn't need anything from us. But rather, work is a gift from God to us. He intends for us to show that God is our greatest treasure through our work, um, to glorify God through it and everything that we do. Um, would somebody mind looking up Colossians three seventeen? Do you want to grab it? 
Colossians 3:17. Let me read. I'm going to read first 1 Corinthians 10:31. These are similar passages, but that one says, "Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." And then Colossians 3:17. Thanks. So again, this, this picture of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to him, that takes intentionality. That takes awareness um, of, of intentionally bringing God glory and thanking him for everything he gives us. We'll actually read some other passages in Colossians 3 in a minute, so keep that open there. Um, but Romans 14 is another passage like this I was struck by this week um, as I was studying. But Romans 14, 6 through 9, talks about how everything we do should be done, quote, in honor of the Lord since man gives thanks to God. So doing things in honor of God and giving thanks to him. And then later it says, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So I think just, I think consciously remembering that we are God's. We do everything to him and in his honor, and we give thanks to him as we do it. Um, Just think about Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. That's a familiar passage about trusting in God. But the second half of that, right, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So that includes your work and everything else that you do, acknowledging God. Um, And then if you go back to Colossians 3 um, and read verses 22 through 24, that would be great. So this is, again, talking now specifically about work, but Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Um, Is this uh, starts bond servants? I'm sorry? uh, It starts with bond servants, right? Yeah, go ahead. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I think this is a very familiar passage. Uh, often quote this uh, to myself and to others who are thinking about trying to think about work well. So what do you think it means to work as for the Lord and not for men? What do you think it means to work as for the Lord? Any thoughts? It gives us such confidence because even if what we do ends up not pleasing other people or not meeting their standards, if we're offering it up to God, then it's okay. We don't need to base our uh, our well-being or success on what other people think. Yeah, that's great. And that's right in the text there. We should expect a reward from God, not from men. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, Justin. Just like working excellently, even in areas that are never going to be seen, mm-hmm. right? So there might be like, you know, things that are very visible that you're working on that, you know, you're going to get some kind of performance grade on. And you're, you're, you definitely want to work on those so you can advance. But even things that like no one's ever going to see, uh, they're kind of under the rug, but just doing those well, and knowing that no one else sees them but God and striving to honor him in, in, in excellent work and all that you do. Yeah, that's, that's very convicting. Thank you, Justin. But just, yeah, if you're kicking it into a higher gear because somebody's watching this project, well, you were doing something wrong before that, right? You should have been working hard even if somebody wasn't watching the project. And that's right there in the text too, right? It says, do not work for eye service, but with sincerity. I think that's what that's getting at. Any other thoughts, Kier? there in the passage too it says we should be fearing God in our work so I think those those three points are all really helpful about kind of starting to unpack what does it mean is working for the Lord but I think it's clear from this passage and others humans were designed to work for the Lord both before the fall and after the fall I want to give one other warning before we wrap up this section as well um, which is to not be a workaholic (laughs) essentially for lack of a better term but Psalm 127.2 um, it, it says that we should not be eating the bread of anxious toil because God gives to his beloved sleep. So this is not uh, a call to make work an idol or something that's um, more important than God, far from it. Um, but I think those sorts of verses need to be paired with 
other verses that we've already studied or like Psalm 90, 17, which is where the psalmist is crying out to God saying, establish the work of our hands upon us, establish the work of our hands. And so that and many other verses, I think, talk about the importance of hard work um, and not being idle and just expecting um, reward from idleness. So one, uh, for the sake of time, we think we'll have to move on soon. I'll take questions in a minute, but one recommended resource I wanted to mention is just, there's a chapter in John Piper's book called Don't Waste Your Life. Um, the chapter is making much of Christ from eight to five, and it's just thinking through how we can glorify God um, in our jobs, and I found it really helpful preparing for this and just thinking through these topics, so definitely recommend that. Um, but any uh, questions before we move on to the next section? It's totally fine if not, because we have lots to cover. So. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's go ahead and move on to the second half of work, uh, the, the big category of work. This one uh, I'm going to call good works, uh, just to keep it in the same category, but obedience to God's moral law. So again, we're thinking about what is the destiny of man? How do we glorify God? Beyond labor and subduing the earth, another aspect of work that man was made for is good works or obedience to God's moral law. You could call this righteousness um, or holiness or obedience. But even before the fall, man was called to obey God's moral law, to do good works. Um, quick definition of the moral law that I read. The moral law was given to man as a regulative principle for the inner man and his actions. It declares what is good and evil, and by virtue of its divine authority from God, it obligates man to obedience. This law proceeds both from the will of God and from the nature of God. So basically, the basic idea here is that if Adam had persevered in obedience, God promised him eternal life, both spiritual and physical, under what theologians sometimes refer to as the covenant of works. Um, man, made in God's image, could know and keep the moral law and be rewarded with eternal life if he kept it. So one description of, of the covenant of works, this is from a theologian named Brackle in his book, The Christian's Responsible Service. But the covenant of works was an agreement between God and the human race as represented in Adam in which God promised eternal salvation upon condition of obedience and threatened eternal death upon disobedience. So if Adam failed, which we know from Genesis 3 that he did, God promised death, right? We see that in Genesis 2.17 explicitly. We see that in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And through Adam's death, death came to all men. Um, so would somebody mind flipping to Romans 5? Romans 5. Looks like Justin's doing that, thank you. So if you go ahead and read Romans 5, 12 through 14, and then keep your finger there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who is a type of the one who was to come. Yeah, so we see this concept of death coming to all men through Adam. Um, but I think, you know, the good news for us is that where Adam failed and the covenant of works was broken, God sent Christ, who succeeded in perfectly obeying the good works that were set before him to do, and he offers his reward to all as a free gift and the grace of God. So go ahead and re keep reading verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Yeah, praise God. Thank you. Um, yeah, Christ is our new head. His perfect works are attributed to us, and we are justified if we turn to him, the mediator of a better covenant. So just, just think about that for a moment. Through Christ, we are now guaranteed a state better than Adam before the fall. Whereas Adam simply had the ability not to sin, 
and not to die if he persevered in obedience. Through Christ's perfect work, we are justified and are promised a day when we will be unable to sin and unable to die, experiencing eternal life with God. So what does that mean for our lives now? You might be thinking, why did we just go on that uh, sort of theological (laughs) detour? Well, it means that we are called, in the words of Ephesians 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which Christ has called us right now. And the Bible says, as it was mentioned at the beginning, that God has prepared good works for us to do, and through God's grace, we are able to do them, returning to the destiny of man for righteousness through our new life in Jesus. I think we have uh, time here. Would somebody mind grabbing Ephesians 2, 4 through 10? I think this perfectly captures, um, yeah, what this uh, good works looks for us now. So Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Just go ahead and start reading if you have it. reread verse 10 there for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so Ephesians 4 22 it talks about how we should put off the old self and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and then another uh, great passage we won't turn there but if you uh, want to study later 2 Timothy 2 chapters 2 and 3 um, are really great on this topic Um, But chapter 2, verse 21 says that we're set apart as holy, we're useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. So that's what we should be, ready for every good work that God's prepared for us. Then 2 Timothy 3 actually says how we do that, and it's studying the scriptures. Again, a familiar passage, but it says, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then it gives us the reason says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, So equipped for all the good works that that God has for us. So like like Adam should have done, and Christ did do perfectly, we now can love others and do good works just as God has loved us, and Christ did good works. But I think a helpful reminder here, our good works are not our own. We are indebted to him for the good works that he prepares for us to do. So before we turn the page and go to worship, I just want to pause to see if there are any questions on either of these first two topics or encouraging insights um, from these passages or on these topics that you think would be helpful for the class. Let's hear from two people before we move on. Is there any work that's not glorifying the Lord? Yeah, well, I think... You know, work is a, is a broad word, right? So I think you can be doing things that would be physical exertion and, and work that would be dishonoring to the Lord, right? So I think there are some types of jobs and vocations that necessarily uh, would not be glorifying to God. So, I, you know, just examples in my mind would be like um, uh, abortion doctor or prostitution or something like that, where just like the work in and of itself is not glorifying to God. But I think there's a really big category of work that can be glorifying to God if we are obeying scripture, working hard, doing it in a glorif- God-honoring way, intentionally giving thanks to him and praising him. But we could be doing the exact same thing. So take my job, I'm a lawyer, right? I could be doing the exact same thing, but I could be grumbling about my boss. I could be not working hard because I'm frustrated. I could be you know, gossiping in the workplace. So I think there a lot of work, kind of the general work we're talking about, can be done to glorify God, but in our sin nature can also be done not glorifying God. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'd be interested in other thoughts on this. I mean, I think there are you know specific passages about you know giving taxes to Caesar, even though Caesar was doing lots of very wicked and evil thing with those things with those tax dollars. So I think you know there are specific verses that can apply to some of those questions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those will be conscience issues, um, and we've we've talked before in this class about conscience and following conscience. Actually, Zach's class last week upstairs about exercising will and intellect talked about following conscience and it's, you know, sort of tying that conscience to the word of God, but then where the, where the word is ambiguous, I think it's talking with fellow believers, living in community, praying, um, kind of doing all of those sorts of things to decide, okay, is this something that I'm responsible for, that I should be seeking a different job or seeking um, to do something differently, or is this something um, that I'm not? And I think those will be case by case. Russell, do you have any follow-up thoughts on that? Any final thoughts or questions before we move to the, yeah, go ahead. I think going back to uh, not being a workaholic, you know, not only does it take a toll on yourself, but it'll take a toll on your family. Death day, take a toll on your house. You could not there to take care of it or your family, your friends. And so subconsciously neglect that and focus on it. Basically being healthy for our bodies. That kind of happened to me a little bit. I had a family Yeah, thank you for that reminder. And I, I think that's part of why we paired this sort of working and also good works, right? Because part of our destiny is to love other people and to even the verses about working hard, it's so that you can serve other people. So if your work is, you know, if you're unnecessarily um, spending all of your time there neglecting to love other people, neglecting the good works that God has for you. Um, yeah, that's not at all um, what his plan is. Um, so yeah, thank you for that reminder. Just for the sake of time, um, let's go ahead and flip to the back. Um, and uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about worship. And we're, you know, this could be a class in and of itself. It could be many classes. So we're just gonna uh, cover some basic topics here. But you know, we do, we glorify God through our work and through our good works as we just discussed. And those themselves can and should be acts of worship to God. Um, and we also do that through explicit praise and worship to God. So Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So did you catch that? We are predestined to obtain God's inheritance so that we might be to the praise of his glory. So God wants an echo of his excellence in the hearts of his affectionate people. From eternity past, the triune God has glorified and delighted in himself. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays, asking God to glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then in John 4, 22, Jesus counts himself among the worshipers of God. Through worship for humans, God invites us to join in what he is already doing. One just example of this, there's many, many throughout the scriptures, but Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So again, the same verb, glorifying God's name. So returning to Genesis just for a moment, some have said that Genesis 1-1 is the first call to worship as it demands that we worship God for who he is and what he's done in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Creation provides the foundations of Christian worship. Psalm 96, 4 through 5. I love how it puts it. It says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So we worship God because he made the heavens. And then if you flip all the way to the back of the Bible, Revelation 4, 11, right now we see that in heaven the creatures are worshiping God and they're saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So at least kind of the first question here, what, what is worship? What are we talking about? Um, let me say worship. And I think there's a lot of different ways to define it. I'll give you sort of a longer theological definition and then a, a short um, definition that may be helpful. So the longer one is from Jonathan Gibson, who I believe is a pastor. He said, Worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator. For, for who he is, the eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for what he has done in creation and then redemption, and for what he will do in the coming consummation. And then I think maybe just a shorter helpful definition would be worship is rightly valuing God's worth and then rightly responding to it. Um, the, the English word worship is it's interesting. It actually came from smushing two words together, worth and ship. So worth, rightly valuing God's worth um, is where we get that word worship. Um, so I have a couple of fill in the blanks here just to make sure you're still paying attention on your handout um, for the note takers. But we talk about worship in two parts. So firstly, the essence of worship is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. Matthew 17, or I'm sorry, Matthew 15, 7 through 9 says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So even though these people are saying the right things, they're saying true worshipful things about God, Jesus says their worship is nothing. It's worth nothing. It's vain because their hearts are far from God. So having a, a worshipful heart is the essence or an essential part of worship. Um, we see a similar concept in Amos 5, 23, where God says, take away their noise. I will not listen to it, um, even though it was the commanded ceremonial worship because their hearts were far from God. And so let's look up one more passage here. Would somebody mind grabbing John 4, 23 through 24? John 4, 23 through 24. This is Jesus talking about how we are to worship. Yeah, please. Thank you. So, yeah, just a little bit of context here. Jesus is explaining why the place of worship is not as important um, as the necessary and essential parts of worship, which are the manner and state of mind of our worship. And then he gives two characteristics of worship, of, of true worship of God. The first one is we must worship God in truth. In truth. Um, so I, think, I think one aspect of this is we must worship him for who he really is with a right view of God's nature. If we're worshiping uh, God for not for who he is, we're worshiping an idol of our own creation. Uh, but I think this also gets at we, we need to worship God with sincerity. And we talked about working with sincerity. We need to worship God with sincerity. Hebrews 10.22 talks about drawing near to God with a true heart. So that same, same word true there. We should be actually aiming at God's glory when we worship, not to be seen by men, right? We could be people pleasers in our worship when we're around other people or even just not to check a box, um, but we should actually be aiming for God's glory. And then the secondly here, it says we must worship God in spirit, um, which I think in part means with a spiritual heart grasping God's supreme value or valuing his worth, as we've been talking about. Um, other passages talk about devoting our spirits to the employ and service of God. In, in commenting on this verse, Matthew Henry says, we must worship him with fixedness of thought and a flame of affection, 
with all that is within us. So with our spirit. It also indicates that true worship is both initiated and enabled by the spirit of God. We see that also in Philippians 3.3. We need the spirit of God to help us. So our worship depends on God's spirit for strength and assistance. All right, so what does all this mean? Well, I think at least it means Jesus must be trusted, loved, cherished, treasured, desired, delighted in, revered, and valued above all things in our hearts. John Piper put it this way, worship is the natural response of the heart to rightly understanding and rightly valuing God. Just think, think about the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So I think a, a question that we should ask ourselves, what are we directing our affections, attention, and allegiance to? The one true God or idols that can never comfort or rescue us? So I think as we come to worship, we need to have um, a rightly oriented heart. Um, let's go ahead and talk about the second section, and then, and then we can uh, pause for any thoughts or questions. Um, but Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, if you want to turn there, that kind of is going to um, frame our discussion for point number two here. But for those filling in the blanks, worship then flows, it flows from the heart to an outward expression. So it's first and essentially a matter of the heart, but it, it shouldn't stay there, right? It should flow to an outward expression. And we see kind of two bullets of that outward expression in this Hebrews 13 passage. So starting in verse 15, it says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we see two basic categories of things here that are described as sacrifices or worship to God. The first one, I think, is the more traditional thing that people think about when you talk about worship, which is praise or the fruit of the lips, praising God. Um, these are acts of praise and repentance, including singing and praying and repenting and confessing, but acknowledging God with our lips. Uh, I think, you know, the first, first thing to mention here is singing, which is an essential part of worship. Everything is created to sing praises to God, uh, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. If you look at Isaiah 44, 23, or um, the Psalms, it talks about the heavens, the sky, the trees, the rivers, the hills, the meadows, the valleys, the forests, and the mountains are all singing to God, singing his praises. But humans, most of all, must sing as that song of praise flows from a heart truly understanding God and duly giving him worth. Um, Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, I'll just read this for the sake of time, but it's, it's a command to Christians. It says, be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Think about the end of that passage there. Remember, with your heart. That's actually an essential part of that command. But one thing that we should be doing with our heart is singing to God and to each other. Thinking about praising God with our lips, this also includes praying and repenting and confessing. Um, you think about the, the sermon last week on Psalm 3, talking about the importance of crying out to God. Um, so you've got some passages there. But Job 1.20, in his grief, Job tears his clothes, shaves his head, falls on the ground, and worships God. I don't know whether that included singing or not, but it definitely included crying out to God and praying to him. Or Luke 2.36-38 talks about Anna before she saw Jesus in the temple. It says she was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So those are, those are other ways that we worship God with our lips. But worship also includes, I put down here, our hands and our feet, or love. Um, so again, from that Hebrews passage, it says, do good and share what you have, um, which might seem you know, not necessarily worship, but it calls that a sacrifice that's pleasing to God in this context of worship. So this is another outward expression of our worshipful hearts. I just think about Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we see these acts of service and love for other people as worship. 
And this kind of links up, I hope you see, with the second half of the work section on good works that God has for us and how those are actually worship to God. Again, think about 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I, one, one quote on this, which I thought was helpful. So worship at church is not just singing, right? It's also all of the rest of the parts of the church service. But worship does not end on a Sunday when we leave church. This is a quote from Bob Coughlin of uh, Sovereign Grace Music. He said, I can, I can continue worshiping God as I have guests over for lunch, clean up afterward, and take a nap later that afternoon. And my worship doesn't stop as I faithfully seek to exalt Christ in my home, workplace, school, or neighborhood by displaying a heart of grateful servanthood that has been transformed by the gospel. So you could call this work, you could call this good works, but we're seeking to be God's obedient servants in how we love and serve others. Um, so before we get to this final point on worship um, being corporate, are there any thoughts or encouragements for the class on anything we talked about? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah, very good question. And I think you know, people talk about worship a lot and talk about feelings in several different ways. So one of them, which you didn't necessarily mention, but just like feeling sort of a high when you're singing a certain worship song that you love or enjoy versus other songs that like you don't enjoy as much. Or yeah, serving God and really feeling love for God and love for others. Um, or whether it's, I, I know I should do this, I don't want to, but God helped me to do this um, sort of an attitude. I think... As we think about feelings, I think what we want, we want to go back to, we talked about the heart, is rightly valuing God and responding to how we value God. And I think as we sort of intellectually and with our judgments and wills, as we've talked about the operations of the soul in the previous weeks, as we understand and appreciate and value God as supremely important above all things, I think that should spur us on to do good works and to worship him. And I think sometimes our feelings will be incredibly joyful and happy and align with that. And other times, maybe not. But if our soul is valuing God um, rightly above all things, I think that's ultimately what God is getting at, right? And I think, you know, different pastors have have expressed this in different ways. Um, You know, John Piper's famous for his, like, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him is that the um but you know i think that sort of satisfaction and rightly valuing god is not necessarily like your emotions on a given day but i think over time it will help to awaken our affections for god and we will love him more even even on days when we don't feel like it yeah Yeah, I think that's helpful. I, yeah, I was not, to be clear, I think when I use the word heart here, it was not meant to be as opposed to the brain. Um, I think when the Bible talks about heart, it's often just talking about our soul or the center of us, kind of our, um, the thing that's motivating us, our, our will or our conscience. And I think that's how we want to use it, right? It's the center of us. And it includes our emotions because we have emotions as humans. But, um, but yeah, I think you think about the marriage covenant, right? Like it's, we are, to, we are called to love one another, whether we feel it on a given day or not. Um, But what that covenant does is it actually allows us to awaken greater affections for one another in a way that we wouldn't without that covenant. I think it's the same with with worshiping God. Russell. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, go ahead. 
can you talk a little bit about, um, I think some vocations or employment, kind of the good works and the worship obviously align. Like if you're a nurse, you feel like what you do matters every single day, right? Um, I have a friend who's an engineer at Garmin and helps make watches, and he was telling me one time he's a Christian, he was like, I go to work and I argue about millimeters on buttons on the side of a watch. And he said it feels really futile sometimes. So what might you say about like the categories of obviously like good works and worship align really well, but in some work, some nine to five employment, that is obvious, and in millimeters on a watch, maybe it's not. So what like what encouragement could you give or could we give to our friends who kind of feel like I go 40 hours a week and do nothing that matters other than be nice to the guy in the cubicle next to me? Yeah, well, I would not belittle the last thing that you said, which is like <laughs> sharing the gospel with and yeah, be sure, loving those right. people around you. But um, yeah, I think, well, I w- want to recommend again, because we don't have that much time here, but the, the book Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper actually has a couple of chapters that really get at this. And it's okay. like in the, about working from eight to five, how we glorify God with that. And it's kind of getting at, I don't really feel like what I'm doing is impacting the kingdom of God. But I think a lot of things that we talked about, right? So as you're making a watch, um, which has to be exact and beautiful, and it has to have all these things right for it to work, and then it does improve the functionality for people's lives and has all sorts of uh, positive impacts. I think as we pursue excellence and as we work heartily as to the Lord with whatever we're doing, we're reflecting God, right? We're reflecting the image of God and creativity and design and excellence, and we're also um, yeah, working as to the Lord. So I think, I mean, honestly, Ephesians 2, what, what was it? Um, or, yeah, I forgot the, what was the Ephesians passage? Does anybody remember? It's either Ephesians 2 or 4, but about working heartily as unto the Lord. Um, I, I often come back to that as we're talking with, so I've got a group of guys that meets every other week, and it's, you know, an engineer um, and uh you know, PR person and a lawyer. And, and so, you know, we're kind of in those sorts of jobs that aren't as obviously um, serving other people day to day. But I think just working hard is unto the Lord and then talking with community to learn about how we can be serving God more. I'm, I'm sorry I can't give a longer, fuller answer right here. Kira, do you want to just follow up? And- That's good. And I think this could be its own class, and there are many books and articles written on this. If you go to desiringgod.com, I actually wrote an article recently about, like, I just do this and, like, fill in the blank for what your job is. And it actually goes through how, um, I'm forgetting what the article is called, but I'll, I can find it and circulate it. But, um, but yeah, it's like we shouldn't say, I just do this sort of job. We should be looking for ways to glorify God in it. So just to wrap up here, we only have uh, one or two minutes, but just this last point here is that worship's destiny is corporate. Obviously, we can and should worship God individually, and the human heart is an individual thing. So you individually in church today either will have a heart-pleasing God or not. But um, the purpose of ultimately the church of Christ is to um, be the bride of Christ and to worship him together forever. And that's what we are um, going towards. So Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, we talked about that one before, but it's, it's about, um, it's necessarily corporate. It says, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. But it says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, a few things to say here, but I'll just read one quote um, that I thought was helpful, and then we'll close. It says, God is bringing into being a diverse global church pictured as the body of Christ, the temple of God, and the bride of Christ. Paul pictures the church as the wife of Jesus in Ephesians 5.27 and says that Christ's purpose in coming and dying was so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ means to have a beautiful wife. That's not the same as saying he aims to have many individual worshipers. She is more than the sum of her parts, though not less. Um, and if you just if you want a picture of this and what we're destined, how we're destined to worship God corporately forever, 
Um, I encourage you to read Revelation 5 later today, um, but it's this beautiful picture of the many myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of people in heaven all worshiping God together and how we together as God, as Christ's church um, can worship him um, and how that's, that's our ultimate destiny. So let me go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you that you've created us, um, that you've created us in your image, that you've given us um, purpose um, in this life and the next. Thank you that you've given us uh, work to do, each of us. I pray that you would help us to work as unto you and not to men, and to glorify you with our work and in the ways that we love other people and obey your law. I pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to um, yeah, have outward expressions of joy and appreciation for you that flow from our grateful hearts and what you have done for us and have promised that you will do. Help us now uh, in 15 minutes uh, to worship you rightly with our church and a foretaste um, of what the ultimate uh, worship of you forever will be in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.